Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For many years at Crocker Riverside Elementary School in Sacramento, California, a poem hung on the library wall, tattered and starting to fade. It was a stark reminder of a terrible crime, one that had never been solved. The poem, written by a classroom of children in 1991, who were grieving one of their classmates and trying to wrap their mind around a crime, took away their playmate, but also her parents. Titled a poem for Jenny, it read, Jennifer Jacobs was her name, enjoyed having friends spend the night. Nine was her age. Nickname was Jenny. Interested in playing with her Molly doll, fond of her two dogs, excellent at making friends. Really liked to sing, play the violin, and play Foursquare. Joined Campfire Girls in the first grade. Always happy and giggly, could make people laugh. Only child. Born August 13, 1981, she was special to a lot of people. In the 27 years since that poem was put on the library wall, it grew dusty. The children who were in class with Jennifer Jacobs got older and left elementary school, graduated high school, and began their lives. Eventually, the poem would come down. Those 27 years would also see hard work from several investigators, chasing down tip after tip, but no arrests for the murder of Jennifer or her parents, Marcy and Michael. What hasn't been lost is a memory of the Jacobs family, among those who knew and loved them, and among police officers who continue to search for the truth. In this bonus episode of California True Crime, I'll tell the story of a gruesome and heartbreaking triple murder in Sacramento in 1991. Dubbed by the press as Sacramento's Manson murders, this crime is still unsolved today. In giving you the details of this murder, I hope that you or someone you might know has the details needed to finally solve this terrible crime in this episode called The Land Park Murders. Welcome to this bonus episode of California True Crime. I'm Jessica and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm going to make a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. I am going to be talking about a terrible crime, one that involves the murder of a child, and some may find this difficult to listen to. So just a heads up before we get started. You might remember the early 1990s for its many world-altering events. One of the biggest happened in January of 1991 when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and the United States entered into the first 
Persian Gulf War, aptly called Operation Desert Storm. This was a major event in the world and in the United States. But just days before Operation Desert Storm, a brutal triple slaying would happen in Sacramento, California, that wouldn't be nearly as remembered. In fact, despite how terrible this crime is, it remains unsolved. And while police are still hoping someone will come forward with information that will lead to an arrest, this case continues to get little coverage. In 1990, Michael and Marcy Jacobs purchased their first home, located in the upper Lamb Park area of Sacramento. Lamb Park is one of the oldest and most sought-after areas of Sacramento, California, and is named after Mayor William Land, who came to California from New York in 1860. With nothing more than a job as a sweeper and busboy at the Western Hotel, he would go on to become one of the city's wealthiest and most successful citizens. Known for more than his money, William Land would become mayor of Sacramento in 1898, but his best-known feature was his kindness and his love of the city. He believed in philanthropy, but specifically for the city he loved, and he proved that by giving the city $250,000 to create what would eventually become William Land Park. This area is known for many things, including the Sacramento Zoo, Wonderland Amusement Park with rides and roller coasters specifically created for children, Fairy Tale Town with 25 playsets all dedicated to a different fairy tale, and a bevy of restaurants and cafes. If you drive around the area, what might immediately draw your attention are the beautiful neighborhoods, single family dwellings with ample front yards and streets lined with huge sycamores, the kind of neighborhoods many people dream of living in. And in 1990, the Jacobs family moved into Upper Land Park north of Land Park and the Zoo, and very near Interstate 5. The home they purchased was a beautiful, single-story, yellow, stucco house with a ceramic dog guarding the front. It sat at 522 Robertson Way in a quiet, middle-class neighborhood. Just a few feet from the bustle of Interstate 5, it was a fixer-upper that Michael, who was a carpenter at Fargo Construction, could work on during his off time. Marcy worked during the day as well. She had a job with the California State Department of Justice. As a reliable employee, she worked as an analyst for the Bureau of Criminal Identification. She spent her days entering data in the automated criminal history system, which assembled statewide data on arrests. At night, she took classes part-time at Sacramento City College. She was an excellent student who worked hard to maintain her A average in the hopes of someday becoming a crime scene investigator. Their daughter, Jennifer, was in the fourth grade and went to Crocker Riverside Elementary School just a half mile from the house. Jennifer, with her brown curly hair, was a spinning image of her mother, even at nine years old. Like many kids her age, she had sleepovers with friends and could sing the entire soundtrack to The Little Mermaid. And in January 1991, her 10th birthday was just a few months away. Neighbors remember the Jacobs as a quiet family that kept to themselves, but often out in their yard working on their new home or playing with their two cocker spaniels. Marcy and Michael had known each other for some time. The two met as teens when they would hang out at Lawrence Park together. Michael grew up in this area of Sacramento, and it's about six miles from Upper Land Park, where the new yellow house that the family had moved into set. It's also where Michael had met one of his best friends as a child, a man named Richard McCarthy. Michael and Richard had known each other for most of their lives, but it seems their paths diverged in adulthood, when Richard would often find himself engaged in criminal activity. Michael, a wonderful father and loyal employee, would instead build a family, but the two remained friends. The quiet life in the picture-perfect neighborhood would not last. On Monday, January 14, 1991, 
Marcy Jacobs' co-workers had arrived at work at the California State Department of Justice and were just settling in when they noticed their friend had not come into work. Marcy wasn't the kind of person to not show up, not without a phone call, and her co-workers immediately felt that something was wrong. Trying to determine Marcy's whereabouts, they called her house several times, but no one answered. Not sure what to think, her co-workers decided to make the drive to her house to check in on her. When they arrived at the yellow house on Robertson Way, everything seemed quiet and nothing looked out of place. The sunny newspaper still sat unread and unopened in the front yard, and Marcy and Michael's vehicles were parked in the driveway. Knocks to the home, like phone calls, went unanswered. But as Marcy's co-workers walked around the house, they found the couple's two cocker spaniels in the backyard and some of the house lights still on. They also found a side door that was unlocked, and at 10.52 a.m., they went inside the home. Once inside, they found an iron, still on and sitting near a stack of folded blouses. And to their horror, they also found the bodies of Marcy and Jennifer Jacobs dead. They left the house and called the police. Once police arrived on scene, they cordoned the area off and began to take stock of what might have happened inside the home. Many investigators say the first 24 to 72 hours of investigating a crime are the most important. And from the first moment investigators were on the scene, they worked hard to collect evidence and get a clear sense of what happened to the family. But nothing happens in a vacuum, including police work. And several obstacles would present themselves to police who wanted nothing more than to solve this crime and bring someone to justice. At first glance, the police thought they were dealing with a double homicide. Inside the house were Marcy and Jennifer's bodies, but no sign of Michael. However, about 20 minutes into searching the scene, they unfortunately also find Michael's body in a closed, detached garage outside. He was also dead. Police canvassing the neighborhood hear from nearby neighbors that over the weekend there had been arguing coming from the house. For a time on this first day, investigators believe that the arguing between the couple may have led to a terrible end, something you may hear all too often, a murder-suicide. But this theory would be quickly thrown out as the evidence in the house pointed to something even harder to grasp. Someone, or two or more people, as police would come to believe, had come into the house and murdered, brutally, all three people inside. But before investigators could really delve into collecting evidence and determine what happened in the house, they were all called off the scene. In a move that angered and frustrated investigators and police, a dispute between the city and the police association over budgets, something they were in the process of negotiating, would cause the city to call every officer off the crime scene. Officers who would commonly work 12 to 18 hour days, several days in a row, when investigating a crime of this nature, were told that due to budget restrictions and a dispute with the city over overtime, they would have to freeze the crime scene exactly as it was, lock everything up, and go home. Despite protestations from officers, on the first evening after the Jacobs' bodies were found, the crime scene was locked up at 7, and no one was allowed to return until the next day. When police and investigators arrived the next day, they got an even better look at the crime scene, and much of what had come out about the murders would be very much changed this day. And I don't know why the information police had the first day would be so different the second day. Perhaps there hadn't been enough time to study the scene, or maybe an officer at another location was giving the press information. Either way, the understanding of what happened during this crime would very much changed on the second day. For instance, 
On the first day, the police would say that they didn't believe the three members of the family put up a fight or were murdered in a struggle. What they saw on that second day, as Evans' collection continued, would completely change that assumption. In fact, the murder scene inside the home was brutal. Based on how the crime scene looked, police determined that the couple struggled and fought back. All three members of the Jacobs family were found in different rooms inside the house and outside in the detached garage. While much of the house was untouched, the same could not be said for the victims. The last victim to be found, the 33-year-old Michael Jacobs, was found on the ground in a detached garage that was also closed. He had been murdered execution style with a gunshot wound to the face, another gunshot wound near the top of his head, and one in his neck. There were no weapons around his body. One of the reasons police, who thought he might have murdered his family and then himself, concluded that wasn't possible. Near him was an open, empty safe that had no hint of what might have been inside. Inside the house, Michael's wife, 31-year-old Marcy Jacobs, was found on the floor of her bathroom. Marcy had fought hard for her life. The struggle started in the living room when her attacker, or attackers, had shot her in the face. Even after receiving this horrible shot, she ran to the bathroom of the house and closed the door. Attempting to use the door to protect herself, she held it while the attacker worked to push it open. While doing so, he used a knife to slash at the wounded Marcy. Finally breaking through, he continued to stab and slash at her many times, hitting her in the chest, leg, and hand. Marcy's body also indicated that she suffered blunt trauma. In her bed, nine-year-old Jennifer Jacobs laid on her back, head on her pillow, clutching one of her favorite dolls, which had become bloody. Jennifer had been shot in the face at close range several times. Investigators determined she had died from choking on her own blood. Each of the victims had been shot by a pistol, but each of the victims was shot with a different caliber. While most of the house appeared untouched, trails of blood connected all three of the bodies. The scene was so gruesome that many of the police were reminded of the Charles Manson murders of 1969. The Manson murders are probably murders you know well. They were characterized by the brutality and their ability to affect those not involved. Aside from the collection of evidence inside the home, investigators were also combing the neighborhood and interviewing friends and family, hoping to find information about who would commit these murders. Neighbors reported that they didn't hear gunshots or people yelling and screaming during that Sunday. Like the Kenny murders, where there were people close by when a terribly violent murder occurred and heard nothing, police were surprised no one heard a thing. One of the reasons this may have been the case is that the street where the Jacobs lived on was very close to Interstate 5, especially the portion of the street their neighborhood sat on. If you live in California, you probably know Interstate 5 by its more common name, the 5. This freeway is a very busy freeway and one of the most famous in California. It runs through much of California and through Sacramento, and it gets really, really busy near Sacramento. And it sat not far back from the Jacobs' house and it's possible that traffic noises drowned out any noises during the crime. As interviews and crime scene collection came to a close, police started to grasp a basic shape of who may have done this, but who just might fit that shape remains unknown. Despite the fact that no one heard or saw anything, police believe that more than one, and possibly more than two people, committed this crime. Since all three victims were shot with different caliber bullets, it's possible three people were involved in their murder. Police surmised that the attacker, or attackers, fled out the open rear door, 
The same door Marcy's co-workers found open when they entered the home and found the body of their friend. They also believed that there was no way in which the people who carried the crime out left the house without being covered in blood. Police also didn't know what time the crime had been committed. It seemed the couple had been in the midst of readying things for the next day. Things like the iron still being on and the family still being dressed in day clothes, not pajamas, indicated this crime occurred on Sunday, but not necessarily late at night. The only possible clue was a gray Volkswagen with a broken headlight that some people saw in the neighborhood driving around the area at 11 p.m. that Sunday. This was not a car anyone recognized. Also, strangely, when autopsies are performed on the family, a small amount of methamphetamines were found in the bodies of all three victims. Though there was so little in Jennifer's system, police surmise it may have been attributable to decomposition. The police do not think Michael and Marcy were methamphetamine users. They delved deep into their life, and there were no indications that the two were heavy drug users. Their families were also surprised they had methamphetamines in their system. They had never seen or known them to take drugs, and in fact the two lived very productive, busy lives, and it seemed impossible that this would be the case. For family, a more likely scenario was that whoever murdered them may have forced them to take the drug unwillingly. Whatever the truth, police do not believe the drugs have anything to do with their murders. Determining what happened to the Jacobs family on the night of the 14th was only a small part of determining who committed this crime. A much more difficult issue is determining the motive, and the police ran into many barriers doing this. Not only did budget issues with the city cut into the amount of time they were able to commit to this case from the very beginning, but nothing in Michael or Marcy's life indicated that anyone had any motive to murder them. Police were also distressed at the murder of their daughter, Jennifer. Investigators, who were too accustomed to seeing murder, were shaken by the callous and ruthless way she was treated. In their minds, it made little sense for someone to come into the house and murder Jennifer. Perhaps there was some unknown motive behind murdering her parents, but Jennifer? Who would have a motive to hurt her? Police began to think that perhaps the Jacobs family knew their murderer. If they had, the murder took place so that Jennifer would never be able to identify their attackers. But this was just a guess, and something police still don't know today. It's entirely possible an unknown monster murdered all three. While police continued to search for answers, people in the Lamb Park area were distraught. One of the safest areas in Sacramento, none of the neighbors had ever experienced something so horrific. A grief counselor was brought into the classrooms at Jennifer's school as children were dealing with the grief of losing their friend, but also the fear that this could happen to them. And like many terrible crimes we've talked about, the rumors began to circulate. Rumors of transients who were out to murder viciously, Rumors of Michael and Marcy being involved in a criminal enterprise. Rumors unsubstantiated by any evidence. As time continued, the police did find one unnerving connection. They found out that the open safe, the one Michael was murdered near, that was open with nothing inside, didn't seem to belong to the Jacobs family. They were keeping the safe for a very dear friend and had been for quite some time. That friend was Michael's childhood buddy, Richard McCarthy. Richard McCarthy and Michael Jacobs had remained lifelong friends, despite their lives taking diverging paths. Richard had been in and out of jail several times, but despite this, Michael, the kind of person to help a friend, was willing to store Richard safe in his garage for him. A few months prior to the murders on January 14th, Richard had been released from Yolo County Jail. He had served 120 days for an arrest that occurred on June 14th, 1989, 
when he was pulled over by a police officer. He was arrested for carrying concealed weapons and being in possession of a bag of methamphetamines, which he had intended for sale. During this arrest, the police also confiscated $3,300 in cash. When police find out that the safe in Michael's house belonged to Richard, they set out to find him, but what they find is disturbing. It seems Richard is missing. Richard's house, which sat at 56th and Folsom Boulevard in Sacramento, was completely locked up tight and all of his vehicles accounted for and in his driveway. While Richard had led a more criminal lifestyle, it was still very unusual for him not to call family or friends, especially his young daughter who lived with his parents. Messages on his answering machine inside the house were plentiful and indicated those same family and friends were worried for him. Police determined that Richard McCarthy had gone missing on October 23, 1990, just a week after being released from jail. A $1 million warrant for his arrest is issued for violating his parole, basically not checking in with his parole officer. However, police do not suspect Richard is involved in the death of the Jacobs family. In fact, they believe when Richard went missing, he was also murdered, though they've never found his body or a crime scene. The connection between Richard, the safe, and the Jacobs family murder is the link to finding who may have committed this terrible crime. Police, however, still don't have any idea what was in the safe. Richard had been involved in crimes, including dealing methamphetamines, but he also had many interests beyond this. He collected knives and vintage Harley David motorcycles, was possibly connected to a motorcycle gang, and was a partner in an Amador County gold mine. It seems likely that whatever was in that safe was enough for someone to commit murder for, and over the years police have heard it was everything from drugs, to gold nuggets stolen from the gold mine, to $120,000 to $300,000 in cash. But these are only possible motives, and they range from a criminal enterprise gone wrong to a business relationship ruined. There are two events police are told about that may help point in the direction of the person or people responsible for this crime. The first is that a week before the murder of the Jacobs family, on January 14th, a neighbor remembers seeing two men sitting in a pickup truck in front of the Jacobs' house. The neighbor remembered it being a full-sized, black pickup truck that looked brand new. It had chrome hubcaps with a white top toolbox in the bed of the truck. One of the passengers in the truck was a man with brown, medium-length hair and a brown beard. He was six feet tall and 170 pounds. The second event happened just a few days before the murder. Michael had told a friend that someone had called his house, someone he didn't know, and they wanted to discuss the money his friend Richard had left in the safe. The man who called Michael indicated he would be coming by his house. Michael's friend said that two men were to come by, one named Dave and the other Gary, to talk about the contents of the safe. However, Michael had decided that he didn't want to talk with these men and that he would tell them he didn't have the safe. According to the friend, Michael was very surprised that anyone even knew about the safe. These men, the men in the truck or the men who were to drop by Michael's house, have never been identified, at least to the public. There were many obstacles to solving this case for police. Budget restrictions were a big part of that and limited the amount of time officers could work on the case early on. And even though six investigators would eventually be put on the case, or most only have three, many people, including the dedicated investigators themselves, wonder whether the lost time may have affected the case. But another factor would tear the public's attention from this case. Just two days after what would normally be a headline-capturing triple murder, the Persian Gulf War started. Tearing focus away from this family, this still unsolved case continues to garner little attention. 
What exactly makes one case stand out as opposed to others is debatable. Those family, friends, neighbors, and including police investigators, one of whom came out of retirement to try to solve this case, have never forgotten. There are no headlines that could push this horrible crime from their memory. Over the years, police have soldiered on. They have conducted over 200 interviews and collected 100 pieces of evidence. In June of this year, Sacramento Police Cold Case Detective Pat Higgins spoke at a joint press conference with the California Attorney General's office to answer a $50,000 reward for information about the Jacobs murders. The police are looking at this case, resubmitting DNA, and going back through witnesses. But unlike some of the more famous cases you may have heard of in the news, this press conference indicated that what police needed most is information. It was stressed that this was not a case that would be solved with DNA, or at least not DNA alone. The police need people to come forward with information they have on these terrible murders. Someone out there knows something, has heard something, or witnessed something. And that information might be the key to giving Michael, Marcy, and Jennifer Jacobs the justice they deserve. In December of 1991, almost a year after their murder, the little yellow home that Jacobs' family loved and shared was sold at auction. A testament to the kind of family the Jacobs were, it had been maintained that entire year by neighbors. They mowed its grass and watered its lawn in an act of love and remembrance. When it sold, the neighbors were happy it would have life in it again. But that stucco house needed a change too, and it got a new address. But the people who love the Jacobs can't move on so easily. Both Michael and Marcy's mothers have passed on, never knowing or seeing someone held accountable for their suffering of their children. Those who remain fight and hope that a conclusion will eventually come, and someday, that someone will pay for this awful crime. Retired Detective Pat Higgins, who remembers and continues to search for the truth, once said upon seeing a photo of Jennifer murdered in the case file, Quote, it's just chilling to see a picture like that. It makes the hairs on my arms stand up to this day, thinking about that picture and that little girl. We just hope that people will come forward and do the right thing for this family. If you have any information on this crime, please call 1-916-264-5471. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of California True Crime. We really appreciate you, our listeners. If you would like to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Cali True Crime. You can always find us on our Facebook page, or you can email us at CaliforniaTrueCrime at gmail.com. Thank you to our quality control engineer, Melanie Duncan. This is a production of Chateau Walnut.